Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having this book and Lord, allowing us to not only see your hand at work in the life of a man who is blameless and upright, who fears you and turns away from evil, but Lord, also mirrors for us a picture of Christ, but Lord, even the way in which you deal with us. And Lord, as we enter into this text, Lord, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us, Lord, to see what it is that you're doing in our lives. But Lord, may it also be a means by which we see the one to whom we must turn, the one uh, in whom we rest, the one who is our satisfaction. So Lord, teach us Shape us, guide us. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we have not, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So far in this story of Job, we have seen a great man of God, wealthy, respected, generous, fruitful, beloved, experience in just one day a nosedive that would rock his world. And you know what I'm talking about, chapters one and two. Describe what happened to Job. He loses his children along with many servants. He loses his possessions. He loses his health. He loses his dignity, becoming a byword for someone who has suffered because of secret sin. But probably the most degrading suffering of all was to listen to his friends who come alongside him and sit with him but offer faulty counsel that is rooted not in a right view of God but a pagan view of God that sees suffering as the result of sin and sees blessing as the result of righteousness. And of course they are coming and their counsel to him is Job, you must repent of that sin. But how can Job repent of sin that he has not committed? And Job is now truly alone. The last section that we looked at is Job basically giving his final arguments to his friends. And now his friends have rejected him because he has rejected them. His children are gone. His wife has called him to curse God and die. His friends look at him as a lost cause. Society has turned their back on him but there is one to whom Job can still appeal. And he is the most important one we must turn to in times of trial and suffering and despair. And friends, when it comes down to it, what man thinks is not important. In fact, what really matters is what God, the creator of the universe, thinks. Now, what the creator of the universe thinks does mean that we ought to do certain things that man then would think good about, but we are not to be fashioned and shaped by what man thinks. It is what God thinks that is preeminent. And that is now the person to whom Job turns with his final arguments to rest his case about his innocence and to cry out for vindication and for justice. So these are Job's final arguments before God. And what we have here in these three chapters is Job, first of all, looking back to a time before his trial and suffering began. And he looks back and he sees the blessing of life 
with God. And then in chapter 30, he looks at his present situation, which is now the trial in its full-born state. And he, he looks, and he is in anguish, and he is in despair. And then in chapter 31, he looks ahead, hoping in justice and in vindication. And this is all purposeful, friends. This is all meant to be part of the plan that Job is going through in making his case. So let's begin now by looking at chapter 29. And we're not gonna deal with everything in detail, but we'll get the sense of what it is that he is seeking to accomplish in these statements. Job here remembers his past blessings. Now when we go through a trial, or we go through some suffering, or we go through some lengthy kind of pain, it's not unusual for us to spend time reflecting on the past. We might say, these are the, the good old days. These are the times in the past we, we remember when things were simpler and life was full of blessing and opportunities and personal growth and, and goodness. And that is what we find Job doing as he begins his closing argument before God. He takes us on a journey of the blessings that are rooted in his past. And he begins by talking about the blessing of walking with his God. He remembers the intimacy he enjoyed as he walked in close fellowship with God. It's a reminder even of another text in Genesis 5 where we're told that Enoch walked with God. And we're just kind of left there because he's taken away. And, and you, you, you just imagine the kind of fellowship that is going on. There's a sense in which what we have in these six verses is a beautiful picture of someone who is walking in fellowship with God and the blessings of that. This was a time when Job was in his prime, he says, when God watched over him and led him through the darkness with his light. It was a time when Job enjoyed friendship with God and his children surrounded him. That's possibly even a reference, not just to his physical children, but to those that are under his care as a wealthy man. It was a time when his steps were washed with butter. See, that's kind of an unusual expression. How many of you wash steps with butter? In fact, if you have butter on your steps, you probably slip, right? I mean, that's the kind of image. The idea there is it's kind of like this rich cream. I'd like to think of it as ice cream, but that's a whole other thing. But there's just this, this bountiful presence, this, this, this uh, wonderful uh, prosperity that God has given. That's the picture there. And it goes along with the next statement. It was a time when the rocks poured out streams of oil for him. Oil there being olive oil for cooking, for, for fuel, for even care of the skin. It was a way for Job to describe his prosperity and that this prosperity was as a result of the hand of God on his life. And friends, you and I know that it's so easy when we have to forget the one who has given us what we have. It's a reminder for us to always be praising God as our shepherd, even in the good times, and be thankful for that. What strikes us with this description of Job's blessing is that it is not <laughs> the kind of self-absorbed blessing that we see in our culture today, is it? Where it's expensive clothes or <laughs> enormous houses or exotic vacations or fast cars. No, it's a blessing that flows out of walking with God and having a friendship with God. And it doesn't just stop there, kind of like in this, I have my communion with God. This flows now into his daily life, and that's where we move now in this next section here, not just the blessing of walking with God, but the blessing of reflecting God to man. And we read now through verse 17, how Job remembers how God used him as a respected man to give great counsel and comfort and care to men and women in times of crisis. 
And verses seven through 10 remind us that Job is honored by all when he enters the gate of the city. That's where they would conduct their official business. He took his seat among the noblemen. A hush of respect came from young men and the aged and the princes and the other noblemen. Now, why is that the case? It's because people heard the words of Job and the reports of Job's actions and his decisions and they approved of what he says and what he chooses to do and they call him blessed. I mean, this is just an outflow of God at work through Job being a blessing to others. Notice verses 12 and 13. He delivers the poor who cry for help. He delivers the fatherless or the orphans who had no one to help them. He delivered the the destitute, those in need of help, food or shelter or clothing. But he also caused the heart of the widow to sing for joy. Now friends, if you want some descriptions of the kind of man Job was when God says to Satan, have you heard of my servant Job? A man who is upright and blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. Here we have some descriptions of the kind of man that Job is to have that kind of statement made by God. He reflects the righteousness of God so that justice prevails. He became a champion for the blind, the lame, the needy, and the stranger. He stood against unrighteousness and those who prey on the weak and the needy. He was the kind of leader a society longs for. And it's a reminder, friends, of another who would come clothed in righteousness and justice for the sake of the poor, the fatherless, the destitute, and widows who by his gospel would bring justice and cause many to sing for joy. Job here in his prime, being a reflection of God, just takes us to Christ shows us this wonderful picture, although it's a diminished picture of Christ, but it is yet a picture of saying, this is the kind of leader man longs for. Not just society, but mankind longs for. So he's reflecting here the blessing of walking with God. He's reflecting on the blessing of of reflecting God to men but he's also reflecting of the blessing of confidence in the future. Here, Job remembers those days when he lived with this this confidence about what was yet to come. He was walking with God, certainly. He was reflecting God's righteousness. But what an amazing opportunity. What what a possibility or a responsibility he has. What What a privilege to stand in that place. And it yielded a confident expectation about his future. Notice what it says there in verses 18 through 20, that he would die in his nest. In other words, he anticipated that he would die with his family around him. Isn't that something that we all want? That he would have a long life, that his days would be multiplied, right? That his roots would spread out on the waters. In other words, that there would be fruitfulness in his life. And verse 20, that my glory fresh with me and my bow ever uh, new in my hand. In other words, his life would continue to be profitable and effective to the end. That he wouldn't be somehow stuck on a shelf somewhere that that this would be just, a, just an expectation of life that would continue on in the kind of prosperity that is rooted in walking with God. Friends, this is not pie in the sky expectation. These are general principles that always have ex- exceptions of living a life of righteousness and justice with God among God's people. A life of greatness and goodness because of God's kindness and favor. So the blessing of walking with God, the blessing of reflecting God to man, the blessing of confidence in the future, and then the blessing of respect and leadership. This is is how he functioned. This is what verses 21 through 25 tell us here, that, that he remembers the respect that he was once shown by others. 
Men came to him. They sought his counsel. They followed his advice. He would speak and they would be refreshed. He would speak and they would act in confidence because they were given counsel that they trusted. And his leadership was so respected that he sat as a chief, like a king among his troops. One who brings comfort by his words and actions and decisions. Now you might be tempted to say, well, Job is really being arrogant here, but friends, he's not. He is simply expressing the way God's favor on his life brought joy and blessing to others. Friends, there is something about saying, God, I wanna worship you and I wanna be used by you and then to see God uh, use you in ways that are unimaginable and to praise him for it. And that's what Job is saying. I'm looking back and I'm looking at this time and my life was a true blessing. But he's saying, oh, Oh, that I could have that again. Oh, I long for that. That's a natural thing to do. How many of you would rather be in blessing or going through a trial? I think the answer is obvious. I think it's natural to do that, right? So Job is, is looking back and is longing for the same intimacy he had with God. He's longing for the same usefulness he had reflected when he had reflected God to man. He's he's longing for the same confidence about his future, and he's longing for that same respect and leadership that he once had among the people. Now, friends, looking back to the good old days of your walk with God can have both a positive and a negative effect. Now, negatively, let's talk about the negative side of it first of all. Negatively, it can be a tool to keep you wallowing in your own self-pity as you reflect on and compare it to your present trial or the difficult circumstances that you're going through. You know, oh, back then I had it so good. And to now, you know, look at all these things these people have done to me or these things I had to go through. And, I, and so you just wallow. You just, it's just more of an opportunity to complain. Negatively also, <clears throat> it can be a time of selective memory Much like the children of Israel had when they were in the wilderness wandering, (coughs) and we find this in Numbers 11, 5, in the midst of their suffering, they looked back to their time in Egypt and longed for it, saying, oh, the fish, oh, the cucumbers, oh, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, forgetting about the reproach forgetting about the hard labor, forgetting about the whips. That's selective memory. So there are some negative aspects here, and oftentimes, friends, we do look back at the good old days with rosy glasses, right? We're not looking honestly at the situation. But there's also a positive side. Positively, it can be an anchor that reminds you of the reality of your relationship with God. Life may have been great, good to you in the past with blessing and favor and ministry success and growth and fruitfulness, but that is not a guarantee. Life with Christ is not always beside still waters or walking through green meadows and satisfying coolness in the shade of a tree. It is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we look back rightly, we're reminded that the Lord is still our shepherd. And one of the ways Christ has determined that we look back through is through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I mean, isn't it interesting that when we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not remembering physical blessings. We are remembering the core essentials of our spiritual heritage. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He gives his body and he sheds his blood. Friends, that is essential for us to be reminded of because we need to be reminded of that he is still our savior even through the bad times. 
And as a result, we are secure because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we must recalibrate our hearts by hearing the truth of God's word again and again and again because we are so prone to wonder. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5, 45, he says, he, that's God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, neither the absence or presence of blessing is a sign of the favor or disfavor of God. And we need to be reminded of that. Many times believers view tragic events or circumstances in the lives of others as consequence of hidden sin. But the absence of blessing of God is not proof of his displeasure. Martin Luther, in his very famous A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, counsels Christians to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. See what he's summing up there. We're so, even, even the best of us, the most precise theological of us, are tainted with a prosperity gospel where we expect blessing. But that's not what God tells us, it's not what Jesus tells us. The righteous must have a secure trust in God that is not dependent on people, prosperity, or circumstances, but only in him. Now, as you know, I just got back from Bolivia, and by all accounts, it was a very successful time. And on, human, on a human level, on a ministry level, just the, the kind of people that attended, the interactions that we had, but as I shared a little bit with you, um, I had this really, really delicious breakfast roll with cheese and jalapenos. Oh, it was so good. And I was, I'm on this, I'm trying to do this diet thing where I'm intermittent fasting so I don't eat until noon. So I grabbed it and I saved it for my kind of lunch. And so at noon, it's like, oh, we're on the road traveling and I'm sitting in the car eating this thing and I, I turned to Tig. I said, man, this is good. And then I finished it and I said, I'm gonna pay for this. And for two days I laid in bed and other things, okay. And that was, that was like our final big day in La Paz with our workshop and, and there was no way I was gonna, no way I was gonna do it. But friends, it was a reminder to me that even with suffering, God is working out his plan. All right, I was in bed suffering. I was writhing in pain while someone else was ministering the word. <laughs> and that's all part of his will, okay? It's all part of, it's not about us ultimately, right? We certainly wanna serve God, but God is in control of this. So here Job is remembering his past blessings and there's a good side to that and potentially for us there's a negative side to that. Secondly, Job then moves into a lament a lament of his present afflictions. Now, let's just remind ourselves once again of the kind of suffering that he's gone through. His, his children are all dead. Just let that settle in. Maybe we know the story so well that it just doesn't hit us. His children are gone from a disaster, from other people coming and killing them, okay? His possessions are taken away. His body is full of sores and scabs. He is in excruciating pain. His wife has turned on him and called him to curse God and die. His friends are calling on him to repent of a sin he has not committed. And God, the one with whom he walked with joy and blessing in his prime, appears to be withdrawn from him. So, as Job looks around now at the terrors he's experiencing, it all appears to be laced with cruelty. I want you to notice, first of all, the cruelty of man's reproach. The same men who received counsel and instruction and took his advice 
are, are described now as, as the, the lowest of the low in society, the street rats, so to speak, the, the outcasts who now live in the wild. And what they do is they laugh at him. They mock him. They sing songs about his demise. <laughs> We're told here that he has become a byword. That's a word that simply means he is a synonym for this particular thing that's happened. In other words, here's a person who was so wealthy and had so much leadership, but because of, uh, of hidden sin, he has been brought low. So when you mention Job, there's a whole context there. He has personified what that is. And it says they abhor him to the point that they spit at the sight of him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anyone spit your direction deliberately in disdain. I mean, that's a pretty humiliating thing to have happen. And there's a comparison here. He was once respected. <laughs> what he said, people listened to. But now, they spit at him. It's quite the picture, isn't it? This is where he finds himself now. The cruelty of man's reproach. And why is all this happening? Because God has loosed his cord and humbled Job, we're told. So these men cast off restraint in Job's presence and say reproachful things. Isn't that interesting? They cast off restraint and now feel liberated to say whatever they want in mockery and hatred toward him. Then we find the cruelty of physical affliction. And here we simply see Job experiencing physically the suffering of that affliction, it's been poured out on him. We're told here his bones ache, his pain is constant, it is unbearable. And even so much that his garments feel like they're strangling him. But what Job laments is this, that God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. You see, although Job has been interacting with his friends, Job is still suffering. <laughs> He's still in pain. He's still enduring the hardship of his suffering. And the, the cruelty continues now with God's silence. So here he is in agony and affliction, and Job cries out to God for help, but God does not answer. All Job can imagine is God looking down from heaven on him and taking no action. And for Job, that is utter cruelty. Silence and inaction are all he's getting from God. And then ongoing further affliction, tossed to and fro by the roar of the storm. And Job is sure God, in his silence, is taking this non-action because he is bringing him to death. So here he is now back in this lament mode, looking back at his life before his suffering, looking now hard at his suffering. Now, friends, this, this all just reminds me of an event that took place just outside the city of Jerusalem where an innocent man hung on a cross despised and shamed by those who were once amazed at his teaching, who now throw words of mockery and reproach, suffering such unimaginable physical agony, and by that I do not mean the cross so much as I mean the weight of the wrath of God on his shoulders alone and rejected by the Father. And this innocent man, the Son of God, the Messiah says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I really appreciate what Christopher Ash says here. He says, there is a terrible divine necessity about redemptive suffering. God is doing something so ultimately wonderful that 
unanswered prayer is the necessary price of achieving it. And Job begins to experience this. His prayers will be answered, but only when his sufferings have achieved that for which God purposes them. In a deeper way, it was the same for Jesus Christ. In a similar way, it is yet the same for Christian people today. When God remains silent in answer to our urgent cries, it is not that he, is, that he does not hear, but rather that it is somehow necessary for us to cry in vain and wait in hope until he achieves in us and in his world what he wills to achieve. That's a profound statement right there. You see, we just think that oftentimes that God is our escape out of trial card, dude. We've played Monopoly enough that we want that free pass, right? We don't want to go to Disneyland anymore and stand in the lines. We want to get the fast pass, right? I have TSA approved. I get to bypass all those people, right? Those are the things we we work for in life. And yet, God, in his purpose, brings us through trials and then carries us through those trials and they only end when he is ready for them to end. That's a hard pill to swallow if you have a distorted view of God. Then you have the cruelty of injustice. See, it's true that God is not treating Job as Job had treated others. That's what he says here. Yet, yet does not, this is verse 24, yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for, uh, for him whose day was hard? In other words, Job said, remember, these are the things that I did for people, but this is not what I'm experiencing for you. But what Job doesn't understand is that there's something happening in a different arena, on a different stage, and it's the stage of heaven where God has come to Satan and said, have you considered my servant Job? He doesn't know that. He doesn't know how much God approves of him. What he thinks is God doesn't approve of me at all when it's the opposite that is true. When Job hoped for good, evil comes. When Job waited for light, darkness comes. And then we have these two statements, his liar turned is turned into mourning, that's the instrument, right? This pipe, the voice of those who weep. And I read that, I'm reminded of Psalm 137 where the the children of Israel have been taken captive into Babylon and those who are musicians begin to to mourn. Here's what it says, by the, the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres for there our captors required of us a song and our torment his mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, my instruments are no longer singing songs of joy. They're singing songs of mourning. With the cruelty of injustice, there seems to be no hope. But friends, we know that with Jesus, there is always hope but it requires that we take off the garments of a prosperity gospel that so easily entangles us and we listen to the words of men like John Newton who said, everything is needful that he sends, nothing is needful that he withholds. Let me say that again. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. Now friends, there's, there's so much to think through there, isn't there? Because we're like, well, if only I had this, and if only I had that, and if only I had that, or if I didn't have this. See, we want to be the ones that determine those things, and yet God is the one that we must lean into and trust who either withholds or brings. Remember how Job initially responds to the news of his massive loss. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now I realize that's on the front end of the story. Oh, but the suffering that he experienced before he made that statement. 
Maybe we're guilty of not letting goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. George Mueller, I'm sure you know of the name, was a noted Christian leader in the 19th century, and he founded many, many orphanages. But Mueller was also a man who knew tragedy. On February 6th in 1870, his wife Mary died of rheumatic fever. And in deep pain, Mueller wrote of the tragic event in his diary on the day of her death. Here's what he says. 39 years and 14 months ago, the Lord gave me my most valuable and lovely and holy wife. Her value to me and the blessing God made her to me is beyond description. The blessing was continued to me till this day when this afternoon about four o'clock the Lord took her to himself. And a few days later on February 11th he wrote, today the earthly remains of my precious wife were laid in the grave. Many thousands of persons showed the deepest sympathy about 1,400 of the orphans who were able to walk followed in the procession. I myself, sustained by the Lord to the utmost, performed the service at the chapel in the cemetery. Now just think about that statement. (laughs) How was George Mueller sustained through this most difficult time? The secrets found in the text that he chose that morning. Psalm 119, 68. You are good and do good. You are good and do good. It was this truth, the goodness of God that carried this great man of faith through his darkest hour. And we must remind ourselves that God is always good and God is always doing good. Although it may not seem that way to us. We root ourselves in the truth of what God says in his word. So when we look back, we must remember that the Lord has been our shepherd in the meadow and by the river. When we look around at our present situation, we need to be reminded that it is the Lord who is still our shepherd. And that is true as we look ahead too. Because Job now anticipates his future vindication. There's a story about a man in Japan by the name of Ishimatsu Yoshid, an innocent bystander who committed no crime, but he was pointed out by those who did commit the crime, and uh, he was taken into custody by the police and by these two witnesses, put that in parentheses, right? Um, um, He was sentenced to jail. 23 years, he went to jail. When he got out of jail, um, he began to hunt for those two accusers. He soon found one and forced him to admit the truth, the fact that he had actually committed the crime and that his friend had also done it. And so he found the other man who had committed the crime and he brought them both to the prosecutors and when that second man admitted that he was guilty, the case was reopened, um, another trial was taking place, and he secured exoneration. He was proven innocent. He was able to have his name cleared of any wrongdoing. Now I share that to say, that is what Job is seeking to do here. He has been accused of a crime that has resulted in his suffering. Some secret sin, the, the, the barrage of his friends and society are all against him believing that truth. And so now Job stands before God, having said, I long for those days, here's my situation, but I'm looking to my future vindication. And he's crying out to him, he's appealing to him, and he's saying basically this, my conscience is clear. Let's just think through this as we go through this passage. Now, I realize this is a passage that you may turn to because of verses one and two, talking about I've made a covenant with my eyes, and yes, we could pause and we could stay and we could talk there about that, but there's a greater context of what's going on here. 
And we wanna see then the flow of what's happening with Job here. Because what's happening here is he, is he is frustrated about his circumstances and he is coming to God in a legal sense, in a covenantal sense, seeking to demonstrate the fact that he is an innocent man undeserving the charges levied against him. And so in pleading his case, he uses covenant language to introduce and to, uh, to, to introduce his innocence and then to to claim a clear conscience before God. That's what it says there in verse one. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And he goes on there and talks about, I couldn't do that, not with God watching and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's a statement that yes, deals with a specific issue of lust, but it's a statement that emphasizes Job's conscience is clear. And as he will list a catalog of sins that he is not guilty of, The point of that catalog is to say, in all these areas, I'm innocent. And then at the end, the language is stated implicitly, describing here what happens to a blessing or a curse on the land. Again, this is covenant language. So they they sit as bookends to this argument that he has in this legal case now before God. And if you'll notice, a covenant formula in this covenant language is primarily if, then. If you're following along, he says, if I've done this, then this is what should happen to me. All right, but there's a couple other words that that help us through here. So just by means of helping you understand what's going on in this text, we're not gonna go into every time, but I want you to know this. Notice, first of all, he brings up a sin by saying if, followed by a description of that sin. Then there's judgment, followed by an acknowledgement of an appropriate punishment based on a sin, if it has been committed. Then there's this idea of reason for, in other words, what's going on there, he's giving a reason why this sin is a sin and why this judgment is appropriate. And then the last one is innocence, all right? And it's the word but, followed by an affirmation that Job is not guilty of the sin. This is how these formulas are used in other, other wisdom literature. But the exact word but is not in our text. But if you look at your text, you will notice that there are there are sentences that are in parentheses. And the sentences that are in parentheses are these statements of innocence. All right, so there is, there is a formula going on here. This is a legal, I wanna say a legal announcement, a legal argument that he is giving. All right, and in all of this, he gives us 11 sins, all right? You don't have to write all this down. You can if you want to. But the 11 sins basically are this. Lust, dishonesty, adultery, oppression, neglecting the needy, um, greed, idolatry, vindictiveness, lack of hospitality, hypocrisy, exploitation. And what he's doing is he's listing each of these sins and he's saying, I have a clear conscience with this sin. I have a clear conscience with this sin. And if what I'm saying is not true, then this is what should happen to me. Now, like the lists of sins and virtues or spiritual gifts we find in the New Testament, it would be a mistake for us to view this list as comprehensive. Secondly, we must recognize, as we've done throughout the whole book, that Job is not claiming sinless perfection. What he is claiming, though, is that he is blameless, that if there there has risen up anything in his heart, that he has been quick to go to God and to confess his sins. We've seen that in the beginning of the book where he's very, very mindful and careful and conscious about the sins of his children, so that's why he's offering sacrifices regularly. So here is a person who has short accounts with God and can honestly stand before God and say, I'm innocent in this, I'm innocent in this, I'm innocent in this. Now it's true that Job's faith has wavered through this stormy trial. He's been confused, he's been angry, he's been despondent, he's wanted to give up at times, but his weather vane has always been pointing at his faithful God. And that's helpful for us guys, because there are times when sin just grabs us and God doesn't, you know, he's not playing whack-a-mole with us. Ah, you said whack. No, because that happens and then we come to him and we say, God, please forgive me of, of what happened there and our weather vane's in the right direction and we can stand with a clear conscience before him. You get that? See, so here's what we have a picture of. So in light of that testimony, 
There are five arenas where we want to just briefly look here. I say briefly, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but briefly look to, to recognize that Job is innocent um, and his conscience is clear. First of all, in the arena of uh, being a man. Um, Job is innocent of the sins of lust, deceit, and adultery. First of all, he is a man of purity, not lust. And we find that in verses one through four. His eyes and heart are pure toward other women. This is because of this firm commitment, this firm covenant he made with his eyes and his, his mind and his heart to avoid that kind of lustful fantasizing. He is fully aware that sexual sins are followed by heavy consequences. That's what he's saying. And more importantly, that God sees his ways and numbers all his steps. He's a man of integrity, not deceit. That's his verses five through eight. These are all under him being a man, a man who is a man of purity. He's a man of integrity now. In his business dealings, he knows that, it's, it's, that his dealings are not dealings of falsehood or deceit or turning aside, but his dealings are out of honesty and integrity. And what he's saying is if that is not true, he's willing to have others reap the benefit of his labor at his own expense and to have his crops uprooted. Then, not only that, he's a man of fidelity. He's he's a faithful husband. He's not one who's committing adultery. He claims that his heart is free from that unfaithfulness. And he's saying, and if, if it's true, that my heart has been drawn away and enticed by a woman who is not my wife, then Job says that he should suffer the due consequences. That she would become another man's wife or that she would be serving another man's wife. So as a man, he is saying before God, I have a clear conscience. Secondly, as an employer, as an employer, Job treated his servants generously. He settled their grievances fairly because he knew that one day he would have to give an account to God. He also knew that the same God that created him is the same God that created them. And so he acted toward his workers with dignity and watchful care. He says, my conscience is clear as an employer. As a neighbor, We find two sections here, 16 through 23 and 29 through 32, where Job is quick to help the poor and the needy. He did not withhold anything from the poor, the hungry or the naked. He did not turn away from helping the widow or the orphan, we're told. He did not rejoice in the ruin of those who hated him. He did not neglect those under his care for a good meal. You ask a traveler or a sojourner or a stranger, and they'll say, no, Job was the kind of person who always had his doors open for him. And if, if Job is not being truthful, what are we told here? He's saying, if it's not true, then pull my arm out of my socket. Any volunteers for me to demonstrate what that looks like? Yet he had been faithful for fear of one day having to stand face to face with the majesty of God. I'm just using the language of the text to just kind of paint the picture in a little bit more succinct way. He's saying, I'm innocent. My conscience is clear. Fourth, as a worshiper, he had worshiped God with a sincere heart. There's two issues that are brought up here. He didn't worship wealth or trust in it for his security. In other words, money, right? He didn't take credit for earning it. Secondly, he didn't secretly worship heavenly bodies like the sun or the moon. And it's an interesting phrase here, by, by blowing worshipful kisses. Apparently, in, in the culture, the pagan culture of that day, what they would do is they, they, would, they would blow kisses to those heavenly bodies as a demonstration of their worship. Now, when you blow a kiss to your wife, you are worshiping her, but it's a different kind of worship. I understand that? But that's kind of, apparently, that's where that kind of expression comes from. And he's saying, listen, I am not that kind of person who is worshiping God in a syncretistic form of religion. In other words, worshiping God, worshiping money, and also pulling in some pagan worship too. That's not who I am as a worshiper. I have a clear conscience. And then finally, in the last couple of verses here, 
as a steward, his conscience is clear. The land that God had provided for him, the land that God had given him, is land that he took care of. It's land that he made sure that he paid workers for to work that land. His land is not crying out against him or, or weeping because of him. And if he's guilty, and he's not telling the truth, and he's saying, may there be thorns rather than wheat, may there be weeds instead of barley. So Job was not guilty of, of, of violating that responsibility as a steward. Again, the whole point here is this. God, I'm appealing to you, and I want you to look, and I want you to show me if there's anything in my life that demonstrates that I shouldn't have a clear conscience. And if that's true, then do it. And he's saying you would be right to do it if you found a problem in this area. Now, this is, this is bold, isn't it? For him to say, God, I am standing before you with a clear conscience. And if I'm not, pull my arm out of my socket. I mean, if that were me, I'd be a bump of, I don't know, flesh on the ground here because all my joints would be out of socket. You see what I'm saying? He's saying, I am so confident that my conscience is clear that God, I am putting myself in your hands to be punished. Now, the, the final appeal to God is found in verses 35 through 37. So just look there, if you would, please. Oh, that I had one to hear me. And what have we found out as we've read this book? Job does. Remember, he was an advocate, he was a witness, he was a mediator. And now what he's doing is he's crying out to God, longing for a just judge and a faithful or a fair hearing. And the only person that can give that to him is God. He's made his argument for God, before God, his conscience is clear. And to reinforce that, his signature affirms his integrity. That's why he says, here's my signature. Let the Almighty swear, or the Almighty answer me. This is, this is you signing off on your taxes, but in greater form. Because now you're signing off to God, not the IRS. IRS is not God. The creator of the universe is God. And he's saying, I'm willing to sign. and saying, I am innocent. So he's so confident of his innocence that he's willing to wear his claims before his God on his shoulder or as a crown on his head for all to see. He will approach God with his claim for innocence and clear conscience as a prince. In other words, he's willing to say, I'm gonna walk in you, it, before you and I'm gonna stand. It's gonna be on my crown. I'm gonna be like a prince who's coming boldly before you. This is not arrogance, friends, but a bold, wonderful scene to come boldly before God and to claim innocence, to be vindicated and to finally have justice. This is Job's last word on the matter. He said what he needs to say. Now it's up to God to vindicate him. The microphone has been dropped. And friends, that is our hope also. Unlike Job, I don't think that we could list those catalog of sins and say our conscience is clear. We have sinned. We have been guilty. Our ability to come boldly to God is not because we have been faithful, but because Christ has been faithful to us. He took our sin on the cross and bore the Father's wrath. He bore our shame and reproach and paid for our sin so that we could be forgiven. But the good news is that now we are clothed in the righteous garments of Christ's righteousness. Because of that, we can look forward to a future vindication that is full of justice. And friends, we might think that the justice that matters is what happens in this world, but God will bring vindication and justice to all in the end, and that's what matters. Now, three long chapters, 
Job is making his argument before God. And I want to leave you with just three quick thoughts. Number one, if you were to stand before God today, what would you be ashamed of? And if you say nothing, we need to talk. I don't say that because I'm trying to make you feel bad. The truth of the matter is, we all struggle. And if we're followers of God, we will be ashamed. Maybe it's a failure to be obedient in some way. Maybe it's a a lazy or distorted view of God and his ways. Maybe it's getting angry amid some trial that God has put you through. Surely we would be ashamed. But there's a second question that follows up there. What kind of God would you expect to meet? Now, your answer to that question says a lot about your understanding of the gospel and the God of the Bible. Would you meet an angry God? Would you meet a a cynical, playful God? Would you meet a, a carefree, benevolent God that just accepts everyone for who they are, no matter what? Or would you meet a God who is just and fair? A God who is good and does good. A God whom you can be sure to trust. Finally, what would you expect to happen? There may be some initial shame. I don't know exactly how it's gonna play out, but one thing I do know is that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now I'd like to imagine him in that role by stepping up and saying, yes, this is Rod Phillips and he has committed sin. But my blood has paid for his sin. He is clothed in my righteousness. I am his witness. I am his mediator. He is forgiven. An embrace, maybe. A welcome. See, friends, the reason as Christians we can come boldly to the throne of grace, we'll all stand before God one day, right? But the reason we will remain standing is not because of anything we have done, but because of everything Christ has done. And we may still be ashamed, but we need to move away from the shame and embrace the forgiveness, who we are now in Christ. And so friends, it's a reminder for us that yes, we can look back and we can look present, But even as we look forward, we look forward to standing face to face with our great God and Savior who will look at us, yes, a sinful creature, but a sinful creature who has been saved by the shed blood of his son and has been declared righteous. That's what we have to look forward to. And if you are a follower of Christ, That is what God says about you now. It doesn't change. But it is what we would expect. Welcome. Come with me. Enter in. Lord, help us today. This is a lot for us to contemplate. Job has suffered. And yet, Lord, he has experienced so much joy in his life. But even more important than either the joy or the suffering is the confidence that he has that you are a righteous God and that you know what is true and that you know that he is innocent of the crimes that he's been accused of. And Lord, when we stand before you, we may still drag our thoughts of shame, the lingering things that we're wondering about, 
But when it comes down to it, we will say, we have Christ as our Savior. All we have is Christ. And that will be sufficient for us. Lord, may these truths, may may this, this mindset of being anchored in the gospel, in Christ, in what he has done, fuel us, Lord, during the good times, during the times of suffering, even as we anticipate heaven. Give us strength, Lord, we ask. Minister to your people, we ask in your precious name.